for listening today. For those of you who are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, uh, we are an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. We also help companies expand their brand footprint by leveraging our platform to help increase access so that they can get to the people who are in the need of their products, services, and tools. And I also want to thank our listeners for their loyalty and for their rich support and comments. We so appreciate it. And we absolutely adore you. The other thing that I love about our community here that we have is we have been extremely lucky and rich in terms of what you have offered us in terms of your likes, your clicks, and your shares um, regarding Alzheimer's Speaks and all of our work. We have had just such great accolades due to you guys spreading the word and spreading the information in terms of uh, in terms of our show and the work that we do. And so, with that, I really I really want to thank you so much because of you. Um, we were recognized by Oprah as a health hero, by Maria Shriver as an architect of change, and then um, Dr. Oz as the number one influencer online for um, Alzheimer's. Those things would not have happened without you. We share those accolades with you. Again, thank you so much. And if you have a an interest in being on the show, again, I would love to talk to you and hear more about that. Please just go to alzheimerspeaks.com, click on the big contact button in the right-hand uh, corner, and um, we will have a conversation. I would also like to give a shout-out to some companies that I work with. Um, and those are as follows. Women's Alzheimer's Movement and Move for Minds, which is uh, Maria Shriver's baby. Uh, Move for Minds, she'll be doing several different events around the country. And you can even create your own. Just go to the Women's Alzheimer's Movement dot org to find out more information. And then many of you might not know about um, the Roberto app. It's a really cool app that measures your brain function through video engagement in games. And so um, you can, again, just go to our main site, alzheimerspeaks.com, and you'll see a big tab where you can even get a discount um, to become involved in that program. The Roberto app is what that's called. And then the um, American Senior Magazine is an absolutely wonderful uh, lifestyle magazine for seniors with topics ranging from nostalgia, health, and wellness to interviewing and spotlighting um, notable older Americans. And um, 
It has a wonderful big print, so it's easy to read and easy to maneuver. And uh, and so check out um, AmericanSeniorMagazine.com for more information there. I am going to be in Colorado on June 5th. I'm going to be down in um Grand Junction. I'm going to be there for almost a week uh, doing several uh, presentations. If you have not or are not familiar with one of Alzheimer's Speaks other venues, which is called Dementia Chats, I would really recommend that you check that out. And you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and go to our initiative and projects page. It's one of the main tabs as soon as you you um, come to the site and then click on Dementia Chats and there you will find exactly what that is. Basically, it is video interviews that I do with people uh, who have dementia and they are actually spectacular. Their, their insights um, are just absolutely fabulous. We have done all different types of topics over the years. Um, we actually started doing this in uh, 2012, uh, but then I changed platforms in 2016 and we lost all our old stuff. Uh, I was under the understanding I would, I would never lose it. And I would be able to take it with me, but apparently that wasn't the case. And so instead of being held ransom, we just moved on to a new platform. And so uh, we do those typically a couple of times a month. Some of the topics that we have talked about are how spouses and care partners are impacted by dementia and, you know, what the thoughts are of those who have dementia are thinking and what they're, what they're worried about. We've talked about um, communication tips um, to and from those living with dementia, which was really quite interesting. There was one whole conversation about do dementia experts and care partners really know what the person with dementia wants? And uh, very, very interesting um, piece uh, on that one. And it looks like A.J. Verma is with us. So let me see if I've got him on the line here. Uh, Dr. Verma, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yay. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I will go ahead and and introduce you. Dr. A.J. Verma is the Chief Medical Officer with United Neuroscience. Previously, uh, he was the leader of of neurodrug discovery at uh, Biogen, where he contributed to the drug discovery and biomarkers development efforts, which is very exciting. And he has received his medical degree and Ph.D. degree from John Hopkins University. So so welcome, Dr. Verma. Thank you so much for uh, jumping through the hoops to be with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, before we get started, I always like to ask everybody uh, who is a guest on our show if they have been personally touched by dementia in, you know, with their family or friends. Well, thanks for asking that. Yes, in fact, um, you know, it, it's sad that neurological diseases are so common now. I think uh, I would, it's estimated that about one out of six people in the world are probably afflicted with some kind of a nervous system disorder. So it's uh, too sad that we all know somebody. And I personally have had, uh, you know, grandparents that um, we believed suffered from Alzheimer's. You know, we, the diagnoses mm-hmm. weren't as clear <laughs> back then as they are now. And I've certainly taken care of a lot of people. I've uh, 
spent, you know, a good chunk of my career as a clinical neurologist in the U.S. Army at uh, Walter Reed, and where we took care of a lot of uh, active duty folks, but also a lot of retired uh, military uh, personnel and their family. And, uh, you know, this is all, an all too common problem now, uh, neurodegeneration in general, but Alzheimer's in particular. And it's really sad that we're making a dent in uh, all these other diseases, you know, like HIV and cancer and cardiac disease, and people are living longer. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. if we don't get a solution to this problem, we're just going to have more and more people that are living longer with, you know, a chance of uh, a good chance of getting dementia of the Alzheimer's. Type. Yeah. Well, in, in fact, in if my you're over was... 65 now, you know, if you're over 65 mm-hmm. now, this is about a one in 10 chance. And if you're over yeah. 85, it's like one out of two or three. It's really scary. Yeah. 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 My mom lived with it for 30 years. So she, uh, wow. she had signs mm-hmm. um, starting in her mid fifties, but for 10 years, you know, she was just told it was menopause. And she knew it wasn't menopause. She just kept joking, this, this ain't my girlfriend's mm-hmm. menopause, <laughs> you know, she would say. <laughs> right. and, um, and lo and behold, you know, when, we, when she did end up passing and we had her brain uh, checked, yeah, she had, uh, they had Alzheimer's, they had signs of Parkinson's and Lewy body um, wow. in a very atrophied brain. But, you know, after 30 years, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you expect to? So let's, let's talk about how you became personally motivated to research potential solutions. Mm-hmm. Was it because you were personally touched by the disease? You know, it was, it was partly because I was personally touched. I was also very fortunate. I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland um, mm-hmm. as a child, you know, just uh, living around the NIH and in that culture. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. while many people strive to get in there, you know, as a career move, it was a summer job for me initially during college. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to actually be exposed to neuroscience research very early on. This is uh, back in 1980, And uh, I've been doing that ever since, you know, and um pursued that as, as a basic science, you know, scientist, as a clinician, um, as a researcher, and now as a drug developer. And mm-hmm. I've been fortunate, you know, since 1980, it's been a long time, 2018 now. Um, you know, it's almost 40 years, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> and it's uh, what the world has changed. You know, we actually can diagnose uh, Alzheimer's without doing an autopsy now. Mm-hmm. We actually have ways of classifying it and staging it. And some of the pathologies that we now know cause Alzheimer's, we weren't even sure what to call them back then in terms of what proteins, what molecules, such that you could make a drug for it. Mm-hmm. And really, back then, it was really um, some symptomatic drugs to help you know, curb some of the damage that the disease does, but really nothing to stop the disease. And it's really been this last decade or so we're in earnest we're putting in enough effort and money, um, you know, just for perspective, um, you know, your listen, listeners might be aware that we are making some strides in cancer and other areas. It took us about a hundred years and probably hundreds of billions of dollars to get to where we are with cancer now, you know, mm-hmm. with HIV, it took us about 30 years, but we were spending as a country, I believe, you know, like several billion dollars a year towards that problem during those 30 years. In Alzheimer's, you know, the last year was probably the biggest funding year in the U.S., and it's only like $1.4 billion, and it's gone back down again, you know. Yeah. So I know there's a lot of frustrations about why well, I haven't made progress here, but my perspective is really in earnest. We've just gotten going on what to focus on in the last 30 years. The tools have developed to allow us to 
peek into the brain and measure things and find the right things and follow the right things over the last 25, 30 years, 20 years. And uh, how we actually do clinical trials in this disease. What stage of patients do we take? What are the endpoints? What do we look for? That kind of knowledge is only just occurring, you know, these last 15 years or so. So I see tremendous yeah. progress, but at the same time, yeah, you know, <laughs> it is a slow pace. Yeah, it it has changed, and I know I know there's been even some frustration with new categorizations where people were diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then later told, you know, that they had mild cognitive impairment, and, and their comment to that was, "There's nothing mild about this," and and they didn't right. feel like their symptoms had changed. But again, the way things were categorized um, had changed. But we have seen, I think, tremendous strides like you said even though we are we're way behind the eight ball in terms of funding and and what has happened with other diseases given this disease has been around about a hundred years um we you know we 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 still don't really know what's caused it and and Mm -hmm. we don't have uh we don't have a whole lot of information on on prevention and things what's um what are what are your thoughts about the the current state of development of new therapies? I mean, we're hearing all kinds. I mean, there's just such a broad range, right, and you know, right. as a novice, we don't really know, you know, what to what to get a glint in our eye over or not. Sure, I can understand. Brand. You know, the brain the brain's complicated enough, and to try and understand the disease of the brain, especially for lay subjects, lay people, can be very difficult. You know, so uh, I. My perspective is actually we have made a lot of progress. Uh, first of all, it's just perspective. You know, we don't lump everything into dementia anymore. Just like mm-hmm. we don't say, oh, someone has heart disease. You know, that used to be in the past. Oh, they died of heart disease. Now it's like, well, they have hypertension or hypertriglyceridemia or hypercholesterolemia or arrhythmia or any number of sub, what they call endophenotypes subtypes of cardiac disease, because that's the only way you can go and develop a treatment for that specific problem, right? Mm -hmm. You couldn't take a treatment for arrhythmia and treat somebody's hypercholesterolemia with it, for example. So I think that understanding that not all dementia is one thing, that there are causative agents. And in the same way, I think we're moving towards a a place where we're no no longer going to call these diseases as Alzheimer's disease. It'll be Dementia with amyloidopathy, because they have beta amyloid, a particular type of pathology, just like cholesterol, let's say. Or mm-hmm. dementia with tauopathy, apathy meaning like a problem with, you know, pathology of. But it's really another protein that builds up in your brain. We might find five other causes. So only that way can we actually get a handle on what we can target our medicines towards and target our drug development efforts towards. How do we measure that? You know, how do we... Uh, quantify that? How do we link it to symptoms? That's sort of what's happening in the field right now. So that understanding has been a big you know, breakthrough. The other one has been uh, being able to actually uh, track the disease way before it's effect- affected anybody. And again, just like you know, when we're young adults, we can have our cholesterols tracked. We don't have any heart problems yet. But if our mm-hmm. cholesterol starts to go up, hopefully we can intervene and lower that. So we'll ward off the disease. That's where we hope neurology is going to evolve, but we need those brain numbers. You know, what are the numbers of a healthy brain or what are the warning signs of disease that we can track at everybody and try to keep, you know, in check? And we do know some of those. I mentioned two of them. You know, there's some Mm -hmm. um, proteins that we have all our whole life, but then 
in late life, our brain uh, doesn't clear them as appropriately as it should. And so they build up and form aggregates and, uh, you know, uh, gunk, basically, <laughs> that normally shouldn't be there. And normally uh-huh. throughout your life or in many healthy people, the brain is able to get rid of these, you know, build up accumulations. It looks like in many neurodegenerative diseases uh, that ability fails. And as a mm-hmm. result, various culprits built up, build up. And they're associated with different diseases. In the case of Alzheimer's, the main culprits are the ones I mentioned, beta amyloid and tau. And mm-hmm. Parkinson's disease is another one called alpha-synuclein. There's a few others. So I think that, that's that been a great advance. The ability to actually measure these things in a living person, unlike other drug development areas, we can't just take a piece of the brain and <laughs> look at it under the microscope or you know put it in a test tube. So we've got new techniques now to be able to image these things in the brain non-invasively just by giving you a little bit of radioactive tracer that might go and bind to these, you know, uh, lesions and then imaging them and quantitating it. With that approach, we can actually see that the pathology is building up just like cholesterol might be building up in somebody, you know, 10, 15 years ahead of time. And now we're realizing Mm -hmm. that really the disease takes about 10, 15 years before you even have any symptoms. So you're cognitively normal, but you're walking around with this, predilection of having, you know, Alzheimer's. And then, you know, the symptoms start to kick in. And then, you know, you get worse and worse. And then you're not able to function. And then you actually get diagnosed as Frank, you know, Alzheimer's. The, mm-hmm. the name of the game for us is, is that sweet spot early on. How can we find, the name, name of the game I'm meaning is drug developers. You know, mm-hmm. I, as physicians, ideally, we'd be treating people <laughs> in their 40s and 50s, you know, never allowing them to get that far. But now... Right now, in, in today's day and age, just to prove that you have a drug, you actually have to have subjects that have some pathology so that you can affect the pathology and watch it progress or not. Mm-hmm. And that's where the field is right now. We're trying to find better ways to identify people that are at risk, better ways to track them. There's actually not a shortage of things to test. There's many new hypotheses that have come along. Even the failures people hear about, are not really failures. They're learning attempts. If I, if I were to stack up all the failures we had in cancer, I mean, people would, you know, they'd be, <laughs> the work in Alzheimer's would pale in comparison, you know. Mm-hmm. So we are making progress. I think some of those targets that people have been evaluating are still valid because the genetics tells us that. There are some forms of Alzheimer's that are genetically caused. These uh, subjects get it much earlier, but they absolutely get the pathology. So we know what the molecules are. Now, there's a lot of science in how we do the studies, as I was mentioning. How early do you take somebody? How do you know they have it? What do you follow? And mm-hmm. that's, you know, I look at those as advances. Each time a study reads out, we learn more and more, and the next study adapts from that. And I think there is some hope in the field. There have been uh, um, some hints of, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, um, particularly in some drugs that clear amyloid um, from the brain. The most promising drugs that do that, by the way, are what we call antibodies. These are protein drugs that your body normally manufactures, but we can make them outside the body now and target them towards whatever pathology. And so we call these monoclonal antibodies. They're very effective. They're kind of the Cinderella drugs of today. You know, they, they're very effective. They cost a lot, um, so not uh-huh. accessible to everybody. Um, and I was fortunate enough to work on some of those drugs that the various companies I've worked on. Um, 
What we're doing here at United Neuroscience is uh, trying to revive an old approach um, to, to accomplish the same thing, which is to get your body to make these antibodies in the first place. And the, the sort of the uh, big picture idea of this is that there's also many people that don't get Alzheimer's disease. So how can we learn from the healthy ones about what's happening mm-hmm. in the not so you know, fortunate? And so it turns out there have been a number of studies and, and subjects have been found that are in their late 90s and early 100s that are very fit, two standard deviations better mentally and physically than their peers. And uh, many of these subjects happen to have antibodies already. These, they've developed these proteins to fight off <laughs> these lesions somewhere along the way in their life, somehow. And um, some companies, particularly Biogen and Neuromune, were able to isolate these uh, antibodies from these subjects and actually clone them, meaning make the same one over and over again, the really high affinity one. And that's turned Uh into a drug now. It's in clinical trials. So a drug basically invented by God, you know, (laughs) that someone naturally had and pulled out of them and turned into a drug now. It's now made it all the way to phase three. And shows some promise wow. in being able to lower lower amyloid and maybe even stabilize cognition. Now, uh-huh. if that's true, then how can we get the body to make more of these things? Why can't we? And when we, that whole concept of getting somebody's body to make more antibodies towards something is vaccination. Mm-hmm. And we've used that approach very successfully. It's one of the best medicines we've ever had. But we've mm-hmm. mainly targeted it towards bugs, towards viruses, toxins. It's possible to also vaccinate people to fight off diseases inside their body that didn't come from a virus, that came from their own body. Um, and if one could actually master that, you know, it would be a, a game changer for the healthcare industry. You know, uh, imagine going to the doctor once a year and getting a bunch of flu shots, and <laughs> it takes care of your heart disease, brain disease. It sounds kind of fantastic. But it's Mm -hmm. possible to do it. It's been shown in animals. And it's been tried in man. The thing that's held it back is it did show signs of promise. And the thing that held it back was safety. You Mm -hmm. know, when when your immune system is fighting off a virus, it wants to go and just destroy it by all means necessary. When you reorient the immune system towards your own biochemistry, you've got to be careful that you don't do, you know, you don't get a lot of friendly fire and do more damage Uh than help. And that's what our company has been able to solve, how to do this safely. And we're very excited about it. We actually have an Alzheimer's vaccine in phase two right now. We have um, other disorders we're targeting in this, this way, like Parkinson's disease and a few other neurodegenerative diseases. But, you know, the reason we chose this approach is uh, let's say we're you know, wildly successful in developing a treatment for Alzheimer's. We make a monoclonal antibody, a, a gene therapy, whatever it might be. Those things are very, you know, um, challenging from a healthcare perspective for a disease that affects millions and millions of people. You know, we, we, if we had a drug for Alzheimer's that actually worked, it would be a big challenge to actually make enough to treat all the people at risk, you know, throughout the globe. Sure. So the solution also has to be practical and affordable, you know, and we have to push ourselves as an industry not to just make the best science, which we have to do, but how to make it also affordable and accessible to everybody. So that's why the vaccine approach attracted me in particular um, to do what I'm doing with uh, United Neuroscience.
Mm-hmm. Now, what do you say to, because I know there's a lot of people out there that don't believe in vaccines because they say they're going to put more into your body and uh, then not, um, and and they they really feel that there's a, a negative um, side, you know, to That's this approach. There has been, what, uh, what do you say? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, uh, I think vaccines are the re- one of the major reasons why we've had the population explosion, actually. You know, if you think about it, back when we were, you know, in the Stone Ages or various parts of civilization, you know, we didn't live that long, actually. Um, you know, average life expectancy really went way up once we wiped out things like polio and measles and a whole bunch of other things. In fact, during the first decade of someone's life, we're actually, if you think about it, immunosculpting people to live much longer just by their vaccination schedule. Mm-hmm. Now, vaccines have gotten a black eye now and then, and there's been various reasons for that, in my opinion. I think, you know, one aspect of it is when you vaccinate children versus adults, you know, one you have a choice, one you don't. <laughs> there's some issues, you know, issues mm-hmm. with that. But also the t- vaccines itself. The material you use to vaccinate somebody differs tremendously. It could be a virus mm-hmm. itself. It could be an inactive virus. In fact, most people don't realize that most of our vaccinations in life have nothing to do with going to a doctor. It's just from getting the flu or getting a cold uh-huh. every year. Or <laughs> That's a form of vaccine. Well, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. You know, it's a crude way uh-huh. of putting it. But our <laughs> immune system is always adapting to the environments we live in, the pollution environment. Or, you know, if it weren't for that, we'd be very sick. You know, because we live mm-hmm. in such a you know a vicious world, really. If it wasn't for our immune system protecting us, so vaccine vaccination is the body's own way of healing and protecting oneself. Now, the practice of trying to use that as medicine has been wildly successful. It's eradicated many diseases. It's eradicated some forms of cancer, you know, for example. And so there's tremendous opportunity there. Every medicine has some issues that are associated with it. But, you know, what we're talking about is vaccinating sort of consenting adults that have a life-threatening disease. And so, you know, we have to take uh, – I'm not saying that, you know, we certainly need to do more research on safety and tolerability. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're very fortunate that our platform offers that. Um, and I really can't speak about all vaccines, but I do appreciate what you're saying. But I think there's a bigger picture. You know, <laughs> vaccines have actually been an amazing savior for the human race. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I just wanted to throw that out there because I know that there are some people yeah. that are, are just very much, you know, anti-vaccinations, and yet people are scrambling for some kind of answers and, and cure and prevention, you know, when it comes to Alzheimer's and, and other types mm-hmm. of dementias. With the with the vaccine that you're working on right now, is it specific to the Alzheimer's type of dementia, or is it broader based than that? No, it's a great question. It's actually very specific. It's specific for only the misaggregated forms of these proteins that build up in your brain that I was mentioning, and specifically mm-hmm. to the beta amyloid. Okay. Now, one advantage of a vaccine approach, as you know, is you know we can use it as a preventative therapy. So imagine mm-hmm. a vaccine that you start taking in your 40s and 50s, and maybe you just get an annual booster you know, every year to keep, keep it up. And you ward off the disease. That's one thing we're hoping for or shooting towards. Um, Another advantage of vaccines is that you can do combination therapy. 
which has been very difficult for most other you know drug approaches, but which we know is probably the only way to go because that's really what works in cancer or HIV or heart disease. You know, most people are on multiple drugs, and we know we can give you know measles, mumps, rubella. You know, we just give these combination vaccines to our children, and they seem very effective. And so we're also working on multiple targets, you know, a vaccine against beta amyloid and tau and maybe alpha synuclein. You know, perhaps it protects you against all kinds of uh, dementias. As mm-hmm. you said, you know, your your mother, um, you know, suffered f- for many years and she had elements of Alzheimer's, a little bit of elements of Parkinson's. And, you know, that highlights a point that um, many of these neurodegenerative syndromes are not very clean. There's a lot of overlap. But mm-hmm. if we know the common culprits that are causing them, you know, one of our missions is to develop a combination therapy to try and uh, neutralize all of those if we can. Yeah, it was it was interesting when I talked with the doctor about her, her autopsy report and and uh, he was asking me questions and we didn't really see signs of Louis body and we saw a little of Parkinson's, but you know, she was mm-hmm. so far along, it was it was harder to be able to tell, you know, what was right. what. So she she had a little bit of shaking and stuff, but as far as gait and stuff, mm-hmm. by then she was, you know, she was in a you know wheelchair bound and and things. Mm-hmm. But um, it's very common and, you know, know, that we hear. And a lot of people, mm-hmm. a lot of people think that, you know, growing old and getting infirm and having all these problems is is normal. Um, you know, it's it's not necessarily the case. There's many individuals that live very, you know, late into their life that, you know, are still very intact cognitively. Yes, you have, you know, other problems in your body and you get weaker, you know, your eyesight, your hearing, but it is possible to live a long time with a healthy brain. Mm -hmm. The longest lived person ever actually was this French woman um, and uh, Jean Calment, and she actually lived till 121. Wow. (laughs) Um, imagine if you lived to 121. Yeah, but you could have a whole other career, right? I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, you probably have to because your 401k won't, you know, last. <laughs> you know? But you, uh, but you know, she, she actually smoked till 116. From 16 really? to 116, for 100 years she smoked. So there is something that's... in the body that's resilient that can, you know, and if we can just learn what that is from successful agers and. Have have it turned on and the, the less fortunate, you know. Mm-hmm. I find that very very romantic and exciting as, as a hypothesis actually to, to go after. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I want to live that long myself, but <laughs> but, but maybe because I'm I'm pushing sixty now and I can feel the, the you know the mm-hmm. creaks and the cracks and the, the yeah. The, the, you know, the muscle loss and the, I mean, it just kind of goes on and on and it's like, when did all this happen? You know, and it's just kind of, kind of interesting. But um, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, about your phase two that you're in right now, yeah. how much longer do you have? And are you still looking for people to partake in that or are you right. fulfilling the process right now? Sure. Well, just for your listeners, you know, the drug development goes in various phases. We first have to, um, you know, find a target, make the drug that can attack it, test it in animal models, which we did. And the phase one is typically a safety phase where you want to make sure that you're not doing any harm. And you introduce mm-hmm. the drug to a few people, so a small number. So we did that. We treated about 19 subjects and found that uh, 
unlike most vaccines, um, we actually got a nice antibody response in everybody. Um, mm-hmm. Most people don't know this, but you're lucky if you get a 50% response to a vaccine. You know, typically when you have a flu vaccine every year, <laughs> we, we're lucky mm-hmm. if we get a 30 to 50% response in the population. I think last year's was pretty bad <laughs> in particular. Uh-huh. But um, so we were delighted that our platform, you know, because you don't want to miss anybody with something like this. So everybody responded. It was safe. And then the next phase, phase two, is typically to work out your dose. And you can proceed in steps. Sometimes you split it up, phase 2A, phase 2B. But the idea is to make sure that if you have a drug, you know, you don't underdose. Well, you certainly don't overdose because you'll see safety effects, so you, you watch for that. But it'd be a shame to have a drug that you didn't dose high enough, you know, and not see the effects. So that's the phase we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And the phase 2A is a, with 42 subjects. And that's finishing actually later at the end of the summer in September. So we'll have a good handle on where we are with our various dosing uh, approaches. And then the next phase will be probably a larger phase version of that. We'll be explore certain, certain chosen doses, and we actually look for clinical decline. Now, in the current phase two studies, um, you know, because they take so long, typically they're a year and a half to maybe two years in phase two, mm-hmm. there's a chance of actually watching the drug do something. Like, does it slow down the disease? Mm-hmm. Um, the time that it takes to see a change in cognition or function is a little bit longer because these things decline slowly. Mm-hmm. But it is possible to see some changes in biomarkers, you know, some of these measurements of the, the cholesterol equivalents, if you will, you know, measuring okay. beta amyloid itself with imaging, for example. So that's what we're doing. We've incorporated beta amyloid imaging into our studies. And with these PET scans, we can actually quantify the amount of amyloid in our subjects. Okay. In fact, this, this technique is very useful because in the past, people would run all these big Alzheimer's trials, but, you know, maybe a 30, 40% of people probably didn't even have Alzheimer's. They had something that looked like it. Maybe they had depression or some other illness. Only by knowing that they had that pathology are you ensuring that you know, you're going to test your hypothesis. So the mm-hmm. ability to do that has been a big advance is what I'm trying to say. And, and we're, we're okay. taking advantage of that to select the right p- patients and to see, to gauge the effect of our drug in a dose-dependent way. And, okay. you know, we'll, we'll keep dosing and increasing until we see a change in that, and then we're ready to, to basically do a larger study and see if lowering that with the right dose has an impact on slowing the disease. And we're excited that we're following some other people in the field, so we're actually learning a lot on how to do the studies, what are the endpoints, and so on. But we're trying to do it with a technology that we believe is a more, uh, you know, uh, realistic healthcare solution for a problem like this. Okay. Now, um, after your, your, you know, you said you're in phase 2A right now, and, and then is there another phase 2, or do you go into a phase 3? You know, it depends on the data. Um, mm-hmm. I was fortunate to work at, you know, Biogen previously, and they went from what they called a phase 1B straight to a phase 3 because their data was so compelling. Wow. So the, the, decision, the decision to move forward to these stages, um, through these stages, is an important internal decision, internal meaning within a company. Because, you know, it requires a huge outlay and, and risk of resources. Um, and so various companies take their own paths and their own level of risk and, and – uh, you know, how quickly to move forward. In the end, though, we do have to meet with the regulators and satisfy um, 
you, you know, certain expectations and try to achieve some pre-aligned um, endpoints so that it's a, you know, a very transparent and an obvious, uh, you know, result when, when something really is effective, you know, it should be pretty clear and uh, in order to get approved. So it's exciting because the field is also changing. You know, it would be hard to do, for example, the typical trials we did back in uh, MS or heart disease. Because, for example, in multiple sclerosis, you know, there's a standard of care now. Everybody's on some kind of therapy. Um, in heart disease, you know, can, it's hard to imagine doing studies without all these biomarkers. And if you could change the blood pressure, if you could change the cholesterol, it's more likely that your drug's going to do something. In neuro, we're sort of evolving in that direction. And the mm-hmm. regulatory agencies have been actually very open-minded recently in being more willing to look at biomarkers as an efficacy endpoint. They realize that in order to really see a difference in cognition, you might have to do a trial for many years. And that's mm-hmm. very costly and risky for many companies. So they're encouraging the use of biomarkers and they're open to looking at data that moves biomarkers, you know, if it makes sense. And that's been a big step in the right direction, I, I believe, also for this field. Mm-hmm. It's a very exciting time. I think I would not be, you know, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, the problem is growing and I keep hearing the stories about, you know, this other trial failed, another trial failed. But I actually think each of those is a step in the right direction. The learnings from all those trials that don't get talked about that really help the next one, the next one. And we've seen the show before in other diseases. So, you know, I'm convinced we're going to get there fairly soon. Well, I, that would be that would be nice. And even though, it, you know, once we get there, we know it takes a while just to go through the, the whole next step. You know, with getting approval of once you, once you have every all the ducks in a row and stuff too, so mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's a it's a long process to get something to come to market. And uh, but it's it's nice to see that there's at least a lot of activity. And again, uh, there's a lot of people that would like to see even more. But you know, yep. then we, we need to donate more money, and we have to pressure our Congress people a yep. little bit more. And oh yeah, and um, you know, I you know, always tell us, I always tell my friends. Uh, you know, neuroscience drug development is not rocket science. It's uh-huh. much harder. <laughs> you know, we've been <laughs> sending rock, rockets up for hundreds of years. We, the brain's much, much harder. And But we're making progress. We are making progress. We've learned a lot. And I think there's been some great movements uh, spurred by these diseases. You know, in the last 20 years, there's a whole other way of researching now that's emerged, which is basically mm-hmm. social network researching. Everybody does all these experiments, and they upload their data. Everybody has access to it. I mean, that didn't exist before. It used to be very competitive, you know, my data, yep. my results, you know. And well, so there's yeah, all these we were... public-private consortia that have emerged, which is wonderful, you know. Which is um, wonderful because we were spending a lot of the same money doing the same thing, I would imagine, because yeah. data wasn't being shared. And, uh, yep. and that, needs, that needs to get out. And um, needs to move forward. And, and more people are participating. I mean, the real unsung heroes, you know, of this whole effort are the, are the subjects, the patients that volunteer to help us learn more about the disease, you know, and their families and their, and their caretakers. And it's been wonderful to see the, the level of participation go up. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, I think this is a really groundswell. 
and this is this next decade is going to see some major breakthroughs in this area. I'm very confident of that. Oh, neat, neat. Well, we only have about six minutes left here, and okay. I want to make sure that, that we're able to um, talk to our audience because I'm sure we've got um, people who are diagnosed and a family and friends out there that want to know how do they, how do they get involved with new treatments um, for Alzheimer's disease? Can they get involved in the trials that you're working on? And, and if so, what yep. would the process be? Well, there's many trials, and I think the you know of course I could we could pitch ours and so on, but I think uh, it's the field is changing so fast, and many new hypotheses will be being tested, and which is very healthy for the field. And so I think the Alzheimer's Association is a great resource, is a place to go to see um, what what is available, what people can participate in. So I would start there. Um, certainly, every company that's working in neuroscience and Alzheimer's has a lot of information on their websites. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more sophisticated ways to find uh, clinical trials through clinicaltrials.gov. Um, usually that's for researchers, but I, my mm-hmm. suggestion would be to uh, work through the Alzheimer's Association or their local chapters. It's a very active organization. They're very much committed to um, you know solving this disease. Um, and you know there there's also things people can do to keep themselves healthier you know um we do know that there's comorbidities meaning other risk factors that that can't be good for you and certainly have, have been shown to be bad for progressing progression of alzheimer's disease so taking care of your diabetes your hypertension your other health problems you know mm-hmm. trying to get believe it or not the most effective thing people have shown in trials is really exercise you know so mm-hmm. getting some regular common, you know, regular exercise, it's cardiovascular, um, mental exercise as well. It's well known that the, um, the level of education is actually, um, you know, can ward off disease. So the, the more you use your brain throughout your life, presumably, you know, so mm-hmm. mental activity. Um, I wish we had better norms for people like do this much, do these exercises, but just to stay engaged and, uh, you know, work out your brain, work out your body. Um, yeah, there. I don't know not. if you're familiar. There's a, a new app called the Roberto app, um, which was actually put mm-hmm. together by some NFL players, and um, it's pretty cool. It does video um, oh. games, but it can actually help monitor people's brain health. And they're starting to bring it in yes. in school challenges and into businesses for for teams. But mm-hmm. individuals can do this as well um, because I, I think we forget about. I mean, we just we just, we don't talk about it enough, even though it's kind of our biggest yes. b- biggest ad- asset in the body, and um, we just <laughs> right. really we, we we've kind of ignored it all this time. And I I think computers and stuff keep our our mind going, um, but again, <laughs> we, I think that social engagement too is so critical oh, yeah. with people. And I I kind of worry about our younger kids because they seem to be pulling out of mm-hmm. social engagement and being <laughs> so online that it scares me yep. a little bit for for, the, for them because I see the impact that 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 can have on That's people. Right. Um, and and it's fine to go ahead and um, you know pitch your your trial as as well. Um, I know that they can go to unitedneuroscience.com. Yes, and, absolutely. And, and that'll tell them about our program. It. Now we we. 
we do have our IND in, in the U.S. for the next studies. And mm-hmm. obviously, everything we do is based on data. So we'll mm-hmm. be looking forward to our results later this year and looking forward to the next phase. Um, but certainly, please uh, do go onto our website, you know, leave any questions for myself or others there. And uh, definitely, you know, stay engaged with what's happening in the field. It's a very exciting time. Don't be left, you know, left out because there are opportunities that are emerging. And uh, yeah. stay active and keep your mind active. Great. Well, again, I, I thank you so much for your time today, and I apologize for pleasure. Um, the, the oh, mess no in the beginning <laughs> with technology in terms of, in terms of yes. connecting there. Then. <laughs> that happens every once in a while. Um, again, you can Wonderful. get a hold of Dr. A.J. Verma, who is the Chief Medical Officer at United Neuroscience. Um, just go to their website, unitedneuroscience.com. And uh, you'll be able to uh, to see all the information there. I uh, again want to appre- I want to thank our listeners and uh, hope you will push this out. I will probably go in and edit the front half, so it's not me babbling quite as much. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, Good. And then I'll, I'll I'll reload that up um, and get that out Super. to you as well. So thank you, okay. thank you again for your thank time. Thank you so much, Lori. Alrighty. Have okay. a great, Have a great week. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Everyone, have a blessed week, and thanks so much for listening. You can always go to alzheimerspeaks.com for more information. Uh, There you'll be able to access not only the radio show, but all of our other uh, projects and initiatives as well. Thank you. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors, from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.